living on the edge. <laughs> I'm fine. Usually there's just always a box here for me. Um, all right, so welcome back. Hopefully you enjoyed a week of Thanksgiving and a Wednesday night that you didn't have to come back here. Um, we've got three weeks left. We've got this week. Uh, we're going to go through the triumphal entry up through the beginning of 21. And then next week is going to be um, the arrest through the crucifixion. And then we're going to uh, end our Advent season on Wednesday nights with Easter. So it's kind of like a mashup of Christmas and Easter together. And to have both on the same night, some people would really appreciate that. So save them a trip. All right, let's uh, pray and then we'll jump in to uh, 1928. Uh, Heavenly Father, we just thank you for tonight. I thank you for a building that is warm and dry that we can gather and open your word and engage with you and with each other and with the story of Jesus and who he is. And we just pray, Lord, <clears throat> that you would be with us, that you'd send your spirit among us, that as we uh, open up ourselves to you, that you would respond and speak to us, guide us, help us to see you fully and see you clearly, and then respond. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, uh, 1928, that was a good year. 1927 was actually a super interesting year if you're looking for a good book. Um, Bill Bryson, 1927, pretty fascinating book. But we're in 1928. Uh, Luke chapter 19, verse 28. Somebody said I, I, they have to catch up where we're at when they come in late, so I'm just trying to, if I ever say a verse number, it's because I'm trying to help those people that have walked in late. Um, 1928. I'm not looking at anyone. And when he had said these things, Jesus, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on, a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation." And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, 
My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy these tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. The scribes and, Pharisee, or the scribes and chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. Verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, 
for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the best places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses for, and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the, great, they will receive the greater condemnation." Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins, and he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Okay. So if we remember last uh, time we were together, two weeks ago, we were talking about Zacchaeus and the parable of the ten minas and how we are investing what God has given us. And also we remember that Jesus has been on his way towards Jerusalem for a very long time. He's set his face towards Jerusalem. And so he is almost there. He's super excited about getting there, which is terribly ironic because what awaits him in Jerusalem? His death, yes, thank you. And what is he doing in advance of his death right away at the beginning of this section? He's literally laying out what needs to take place for him to die. Because as we've talked about, uh, as Luke has progressed, we see this um, increasing in provocation and the provoking that Jesus does to the powers that be within the, in the Jewish uh, structure because he needs them. Are you looking for your wife? Oh, you don't want to sit by her? Is there something we need to talk about? <laughs> he needs them to, to take him to the cross. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't call you out. It's not like everyone on the internet knows that it, who it was. <laughs> So he needs them to bring him so that he can be crucified. And in order to do that, he needs to continue to poke the bear and get them to respond to what he is doing. And so the first thing he does to set that up is he makes this grand entrance. And the question becomes, why does Jesus need to ride on this donkey or colt, whatever you want to describe it as? The dude's literally been walking around for 30-some years. I think he's physically fit and able to walk himself. And as if you know about that area, literally downhill from where he is at into Jerusalem. It's all downhill from here, literally in a uh, geographical sense. But he makes this decision, he plans ahead, and then he has his disciples help execute the plan. And part of that plan is to borrow someone else's colt or donkey, again, depending on how you want to talk about it. And it certainly has me asking this very interesting question about myself. Jesus is asking for help, 
from his disciples, and he's also asking to borrow someone else's stuff. And I know for somebody who, I've told the story before about the time I got pinched myself between the couch and the steps, and I thought I was going to have to go 127 hours and cut my arm off because Nikki was out of town. Like, I do not ask for help. Like, I speak better Spanish than I speak help. <laughs> and, but then you read this story, and you see Jesus, and Jesus says, I need your help. I need you to help me bring about what is going to happen. And certainly Jesus, we know that he doesn't have anything, and he's not afraid to ask people for their things or to borrow their things. And it just brings about, you know, in, in this classic 1990s, what would Jesus do? He would A, ask for help, and he would B, ask to borrow stuff. But for some reason, we've convinced ourselves we don't need to do either of those things. So he makes this grand entrance. Now, we have to remember, again, this is the time of Passover, and Jesus is coming into the city. The city is already kind of stirred up around this idea of Passover, and he makes this grand entrance. Now, depending on how we look at it, there's, there's either like the biggest crowd we've ever imagined, um, or there's, you know, a few hundred people. Either way, there's a commotion taking place of Jesus entering into the city. And for the disciples and for the, for the observant Jew... These things that they're saying are, are calling back to the Old Testament and calling back to these prophecies about who the Messiah will be and how the Messiah will come in. And so if you've been literally spending generations of your life expecting something from the Messiah, Jesus is landing awfully close, except pretty sure colt or donkey doesn't, it's not like a mistranslation of the Greek to warhorse. <laughs> He's coming in on humble means. But, I mean, look at this guy. He hops on this colt. I mean, this is like the first example of Jesus being like a professional bronc rider. This thing's never been ridden before. I mean, he just hops on it. He's like, yeehaw, no saddle or anything. Yes? Yes, thank you. He didn't just hop on it. Uh, Val wanted me to point out earlier. She did bring that up earlier. And I, I, this is why it's helpful to have other people share with you what they're seeing because oftentimes you create your own stories as you're reading. It says in verse 35, they set him on it. So again, this idea that Jesus is this prestigious person who's being placed on the donkey because they want Jesus to be this particular type of person. And the crowd in essence, is like, this is exactly what we've been waiting for. Verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. When you hear the phrase glory in the highest, what do you think of? Christmas, yes! And again, if we look at uh, Luke as this mirrored image of what happens in the beginning also reflects in the end, we start to see some of these images. Glory in the highest to Jesus is this echo of glory to the highest Jesus, baby Jesus, right? And so we see this interesting uh, parallel that's happening. And of course, the Pharisees, who are about to, in essence, go away from the story, are, are not really pleased. 
And he says, they're not going to be quiet because even these, these rocks will cry out. Again, making this reference back to the Old Testament. And Je Jesus, as he rides in, he sees the city and he has this experience. Because again, Jesus came first for the Jews. Jesus comes as the Messiah for the Jews. And Jerusalem, in this instance, represents everything Jew. Like, Jerusalem is the capital for the Jews. It's this holy place for the Jews. The temple is in Jerusalem. The temple is where God is. And so when we hear and we see Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, he is, in essence, looking at the people and saying, I came for you, and you have rejected me. Now, there certainly are a, a number of Jews that actually receive him and have been following him, but the, the structures of Judaism, the scribes, the Pharisees, all the powers that be, have completely rejected him. And you, you can think of it in this way. And uh, when you're a parent and you try to instruct your children about how things are going to go, and I, I know Amy has made reference to this before, and, and your children make decisions for their own that are not the best decisions. And as a parent, you literally can do nothing but watch them make the bad decision. And so the pain that is experienced by your child making the bad decision is the exact pain that Jesus is seeing when he sees the city of Jerusalem. He knows what's coming for them. He knows what's coming for him. And he's like, you, you were so close and you missed it, which has been the, it's been the theme on repeat over and over and over. The people that are supposed to get it don't get it. The people that aren't supposed to get it, they get it. Also, we see this interesting thing between uh, this instance and the next instance of Jesus expressing his emotions. And, and for some of us, that becomes a very uncomfortable thing. In particular, when a male expresses emotion, either, uh, either one of these emotions, the crying aspect, the weeping over Jerusalem, or the anger aspect when he's in the temple, because we don't like to experience most of other people's emotions. <laughs> because what is often the very first thing that somebody says when they begin to have tears? I'm sorry. No, no. The person who starts to cry, yeah, you say, why are you crying? And the other person says, I'm sorry for this. But why? Why do we apologize when tears become to begin to come out of our eyes? And I know this all too well. I've talked about this uh, time and time again. I've, sat, I've stood, stood on the stage and I've cried uncontrollably, literally uncontrollably. Because the tears aren't often controllable. It's an inadvertent reaction. It's not like, you know, when I'm watching, you know, uh, lessons in chemistry, I'm like, this is not real. <laughs> and the dog is talking. And I'm crying because I'm thinking about my own dog in this instance, if this were to happen. And you're like, this doesn't even make sense. I know. <laughs> And so Jesus 
again, here he is revealing the humanity that, that is him. Jesus, fully human in this instance, is he is overcome by his emotion for what is about to happen to his beloved people, the Jews. And that they just don't get it. And we want to constantly remind ourselves of the humanity of Jesus and the divinity of Jesus. And in this instance, we see his humanity fully on display because to show our emotions is not a bad thing. It is a good thing. It is a human thing. It is a positive thing. And for some reason, we have sensed that that is a bad thing. Because Jesus says, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. And he has this longing desire for the Jews to get it. Yes. Yes. Is this Jesus first, the question is, is this Jesus' first inclination that the Jews are rejecting him, or has this happened, or has this been ruminating in his mind? I, I don't think this is the, his first realization. I think what we see as the narrative escalates is the finality of what's happening. Because again, he's entering the city to die. And, and he, it's almost like the window is closing like, he's about to not be there. And so, the, I mean, if you came and your whole life's purpose was to bring about the restoration of a people group, and you spent, I mean, in essence, depending on how you want to parse it out, 21 years since he was 12 years old to this point, or even later, you know, depending on how you look at it, literally his whole life is to, be, to bring about the restoration of his people, to be the Messiah, and he's like, it's not going to happen. They're not going to get it. And so, yeah, I think the finality is what's overwhelming him. Um, is, this, is this him saying, I failed? Do you want to sit by Dave? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think, it is a, I think it's a fabulous question. Uh, the question, though, is what is the metric for failure and success? Because if the metric for success for the life, and life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is that the Jews would see him as Messiah, then I think there's been a lot of failure. But I think he also, I mean, God has been walking with his people long enough. He knows that not all of them are going to be faithful followers of him. Even though they retain their identity as a Jew, it doesn't, I mean, look at how the Old Testament ends. He's like, shut this place down because you people don't get it. And then we walk in to Jesus and some people get it and some people don't get it. Um, so yeah, failure and success, I, I think that's a grand question. Um, 
Because what else is also happening is he knows what's going to happen to them. And that causes him great pain. And then he goes into the temple. I mean, right away he enters into the city. He has this experience. Then he goes into the temple. And, you know, in Luke's gospel, it's the first example that we get this. We haven't had Jesus in the temple since he was 12. But we know in other gospels, he entered the temple and he did this more than once. But in Luke's case, he enters the temple and he immediately is... um, depending on how you want to define it, angry about what's happening. And what is happening in the temple, the problem is not that they're selling things. Because we know that in order to uh, function in the temple, you go to the temple, especially now, think about it's Passover, you're going to make this trip to, the, to Jerusalem, you're going to go to the temple, you got to buy some stuff so that you can make your offerings and sacrifices. And so what's happening is there are people in the temple who are selling things, and they are taking advantage of the Jews that are coming to offer sacrifices by upcharging them and swindling them by putting their needs and their desires above the people that they're working with, i.e. their brothers and sisters. And so Jesus says, you people have made a mockery of what the temple represents. The relationships that are happening here are completely corrupt and need to be dealt with. Because there are people who believe that they can take advantage of fellow followers of Yahweh, Jews, and make money, especially at Passover time. And Jesus says, how dare you believe that you can capitalize on the kingdom of God and the exercise of the Jewish religion? And that's why he's so upset, because people are misusing what the temple was made for, what the sacrificial system was made for. People are using other people. They're exploiting other people. Remember last time we talked, two weeks ago, we had an example of somebody who is commended with salvation, because what does he do? Yes, He makes, did you say reparations? Yes, he gives back. Zacchaeus, the wee little guy, he gives half his stuff away, and if he he defrauds anyone, he pays them back four times. Now, fast forward just a little bit in the story. I know it's been a whole two weeks. A little bit, though, in the text, and Jesus sees these people in the temple that are supposed to get it. They don't get it. They're defrauding their people, and they're using the temple for commerce, so that they can benefit and others are not benefiting. Others are being exploited. Yes. Well, they would have been, I mean, it doesn't specify like exactly where they're at within, you know, we have an idea of, you know, obviously we we have a large we could have a large-scale picture of what the temple would have looked like and where they probably would have been. That's not really the point. The point, isn't, the point is that they are exploiting the needs of the people for their own personal gain. And, and Jesus is like, you can't do this. You have taken and distorted what this place is to be to make it a place for your own benefit. And again, he uses two Old Testament references to do that. 
And what does he do? Once he clears them out, he starts teaching. He starts teaching the people about what's happening. And we start to see this barrage of individuals who are coming at Jesus trying to catch him. Talking about John and, and who, you know, the baptism of John. And again, how does Jesus respond to the question? With a question. It's fabulous. He doesn't give them a straight answer. He gives them questions because he knows what's happening. Because they want to challenge his authority. What was one of the very first things that happens in the story of Jesus? He goes into the wilderness. Satan tests Jesus and tests his authority. So we have the authority of Jesus being tested again. And then he tells this story in this the story of the wicked tenants is one that just, in some ways, leaves us baffled. But it is the story that Jesus tells about how the Jewish people, God has sent prophet after prophet. The people have rejected them. He sends his son, Jesus. And what do they do? They're about to kill him. And Jesus says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Again, using these references that that if we knew, if we had our Old Testament memorized, um, we could probably get a better idea of this. But the listener of the first century would have known that. And this idea that those who stumble on Christ, it's going to crush them. Which, getting back to this, the, the question that you'd asked Chuck about this idea of failure. And, you know, we just, we wrestle so much. I let me rephrase that. I have been wrestling for a very long time about how do we, what do we do with this, the covenant that God makes with the Jewish people, and then Jesus comes along, and so then what do we do with that covenant, and how does Jesus and, and, and understand what's happening to the Jewish people, this, these words that say, if you stumble, if you miss Jesus, if you stumble on Jesus, that's what he says. If you, everyone who falls on the stone, which is Jesus, will be broken to pieces. And I just scratch my head and I say, well, so what's happening here? What's happening here when Jesus is coming down to the end and he's saying these stinging, stinging words about what is going to happen to the Jewish people? And we just scratch our head and say, this, is, this stuff doesn't take long. Because we know shortly after Jesus' resurrection, Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple is destroyed. Next week we're going to talk about, we're going to start with the destruction of the temple and this prophetic uh, utterance that Jesus has about the destruction of the temple. And so how do we conceptualize of what's happening here? And then they try to test him again with this idea of the denarius and about paying taxes to Caesar. And it's very interesting because oftentimes this gets translated as, um, you know, give all of your money to, that has, you know, Caesar's face on it to Caesar. But it's more about, you know, the allotment to Caesar than it is about giving everything to Caesar. And, you know, when you talk about this idea of, Give to God the things that are God's. And if you see a one-to-one correlation, who has the image of C- what has the image of Caesar on it? The money. And what has the image of God on it? Humanity. 
So in essence, he's saying, these things are temporal and have the image of Caesar on it, and these things are eternal and they have the image of God on it. And they become silent. Notice, you know, how would you like to be this per- these people that are like, hey, you go, t- you go take on Jesus. Good luck. We'll wait here for you. And now we see a different group coming, these Sadducees. And I love the disclaimer that Luke gives us. These people are the ones that deny the resurrection. But what are they asking about? The resurrection. And Jesus gives this very cryptic phrase. You know, they give the old seven brides, I mean seven brothers for one bride. Wouldn't have been as good of a play, I don't think. Um, And Jesus gives us this cryptic phrasing that has us scratching our heads like about this idea of marriage and, and, and when is marriage a reality and are we married in heaven and what does it mean to be like an angel or equal to the angel and, and all of these things and talking about Moses and the burning bush and what does Moses and the burning bush have to do with angels in heaven and then we just, we either become fixated on it or we often don't think about it at all. And I think the best translation of what's happening here is he is talking about, again, the temporal versus the eternal. One thing that we've been talking about throughout Luke's gospel is the distinction between those who are focused on the temporal and those who are focused on the eternal. And so this idea of those who marry and are given in marriage are temporal, the temporal folks focused on the here and now versus the eternal, which would be the angelic beings that don't have a temporal body or a physical body and it's not saying it's not saying that we become angels when we go to heaven there is a clear distinction that the you know again it is dangerous ground to interpret one section to i'm trying to say this so correctly <laughs> It's dangerous ground when we choose to form theological conclusions on an ambiguous section of text. So if we want to talk about heaven and bodies in heaven and all that, this is a long, complex, winding, very dark and gray-filled area that we discuss. But oftentimes we become fixated on these things because We don't know the actual answer. We don't know the certainty of the answer. And then we neglect the important things that are here and now that we know for certain about. And so Jesus is trying to make the point, where is your focus? And these people don't even care about the resurrection. All they care about is trapping Jesus. And he makes the point that he is not God of the dead, but of the living. And that is going to be something we're going to talk about a lot in the last week on December 13th. And the importance of the resurrection, the physical resurrection of Jesus, has significant implications for us and how we understand heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, and, and what happens to our physical bodies in the resurrection when Jesus comes back. We're going to talk about that in two weeks. So he says to them, again, they no longer dared to ask him any questions. They're like, okay, we get it. 
And so then he asks them a question. He turns it on them because, again, remember, what is he trying to do? He's trying to rile them up. He's trying to provoke them because what does he want to have happen? He wants to be crucified. He said it now four times. The Son of Man must go and be crucified, punished, ridiculed, all these things, die, and be resurrected. So he has that as his sole focus on what he's doing. And so now he goes on the offensive to, in essence, make them look stupid. And he takes David, King David, their guy, and says, oh, by the way, in case you're wondering, how, what do we do with this phrase that David says, the Lord said to my Lord, and how can that Lord be David's son if it's David's Lord? And really, there is no response. And then he proceeds to go on, and he talks again, and he says, beware of these people. Why are they to beware of them? Because they like to walk around in long robes. They love greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. What have we already talked about? Those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who think too highly of themselves will be humbled. Those who choose to take the best seat will be what? told to sit at the back of the bus, which I guess in the bus situation, the back of the seat is the preferred seat. The back of the bus is the preferred seat, but you get the idea. Those who desire the places of honor at feasts. And again, it becomes the reality that Jesus keeps talking about, that the kingdom of God is the opposite of the kingdom of this world. And what we think is important in this world is not as important or not important at all in the kingdom of heaven. Those people who think they're important here and now are not going to be that important in the kingdom of heaven. And that becomes this common theme because Jesus comes for the, the cast out, the rejected, the less than, the least of these, and he keeps going and going after this reality. And there is this distinction between the power structures that exist within the Jewish nation and the power structures that exist in the kingdom of God. And he is saying, beware of the power structures and the people who love power on this earth because those people are headed down a very dangerous path. And it becomes so, so, so challenging for us. As John said a few weeks ago, when the church has power, it's not a good thing. <laughs> when we look historically about, well, but, but if we just get the right power, then, then things can really happen. But again and again and again and again, Jesus talks about the danger of people who desire power and desiring power in general in this life. Because it is, a, it is a wicked beast. It is a wicked beast that, that has its way to get its tentacles into us. And he says, even these people who are supposed to get it, the religious leaders who are supposed to get it, it immediately goes to their head and inflates their head to believe that they are something that they are not. And Jesus is warning the people 
Because what is about to happen when he goes and he goes before Pilate and he goes before Herod and the whole thing, there is this contingency, right, waiting because the, the crowd is there, right? And it's, spoiler alert, who do you want? Do you want Barabbas or do you want Jesus? So he gives this warning to beware of the scribes, and yet some people are sucked in to what the scribes want, and they want Jesus killed. And so for the person who has power and authority is this cautious warning of what's happening. Because what do these people do? Not only do they desire power, but they devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So my question is, what's too long of a prayer? (laughs) What's too long of a sermon? It doesn't say anything about too long of a sermon. It just says too long. They love these long prayers. They love these long prayers. Uh, John has a hilarious story about long prayers, but I'll let him tell that story. (laughs) And then what happens next? He describes these people who devour widows' houses and what is in the next story. A poor widow. And again, I mean, like I said, I just keep beating on this drum. We stop at 21. We're like, whoo, made it through a whole chapter. I'm good. Let's not take this too quickly. Don't want to rush through this Bible and all, you know. That was a joke, okay? Just, just a joke. Um, but we stop at 20 instead of going into 21, yet 21 is linked into 20 with the connection of this poor widow. And Jesus looks up. We're still in the temple. We're still in the same experience. And he sees this rich person putting their gift into the offering box. And he sees this poor widow putting in her two small copper coins. And he says, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. And again, it just becomes this very, very challenging thing for us. Because Jesus uses these examples and he makes the case that it's not actually the amount that is put in. It's the ratio that is put in. Because what did we say, the rich young man, what does he have to give in order to follow Jesus? Everything. What does this widow give? Everything. Zacchaeus only gives 50%. What's the deal? I mean, come on. What's the deal? As Jerry Seinfeld would say. And it's this idea of do we give out of abundance? Do we give out of comfort? Or do we give out of sacrifice? Do we give out of complete and total dependence? Do we give all that we have to God? Or do we give what we feel like that we can give away.
Is it about faith? I don't, I don't know. I think there becomes a very challenging thing, right? Because we can't just all give our money away, right? Because we live in a society where that doesn't, we, unless we're all going to buy in to living in a communal, I mean, when we get into Acts 2 and they sell everything and have everything in common, I mean, that's, that's where we start that discussion. But if we were to take a raise of hands, who wants to join a commune? We're going to sell all of our stuff. We're going to buy a piece of property and move in together and share all of our money. <laughs> Seeing no hands. <laughs> but that becomes the question. What informs our choices, capitalism or Jesus? Because Jesus at times says these most unbelievably radical things, and we're like, nope, <laughs> nope. And again, here we have this example where if we were to lift this out of its context, right, we could make that conclusion. Jesus says uh, she gave everything she had. She's given more than anyone so therefore, if I want to give like her, then i got to give all I have, right? That's how, that would be our, our conclusion. The challenge becomes that's an inappropriate way to interpret Scripture by lifting things completely out of their context and missing the point. Because what just happened earlier in this sequence of stories? What does Jesus do right after he gets to town? Yeah, come on, Marcy, you were all excited about this. Like, Jesus flipping tables over, right? So what's happening in the temple? You have this contrasting vision of people who are exploiting the poor for their own gain. And then over here, we have an example of the poor that are exploiting no one and giving everything they have. And so how are we to interpret, what does this mean to me, right? That becomes the at the end of the day, oftentimes that becomes the question, unfortunately, because the question isn't, what does this mean to me? It's, what is God trying to communicate to me about his kingdom and who he is? And I think the key line is, uh, she contributed more because they contributed out of their abundance. And so it's this concept of sacrificial giving that Jesus is honing in on. Because for some of us, it's, this isn't just about dollars, or in this case, pennies. And, and I, you know, I think about this very regularly. <laughs> because, you know, when we talk about this, this idea of serving others, and I know you're like, okay, we just talked about this a few weeks ago. Oftentimes, we, we, give when it's con we give of our time when it's convenient for our time. But if we take the same concept, then we give not out of our abundance, we give out of our desire to love other people and to love God. And so that means we sacrifice things that we want, our time, for other people. You know, 
not a lot of people want to go serve at the shelter, uh, you know, at 10 o'clock at night. Let's take Christmas Eve. I want to spend time with my family. I don't want to come to church at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and serve. <laughs> Can I get an amen? <laughs> but in this case, Jesus is saying it's not about the amount that is given in, you know, if we were to stack up dollars, it's in the ratio and the posture of the heart that is given. Because you're, we're right, Zacchaeus gave 50%. He didn't give everything. But Zacchaeus' posture and attitude towards Jesus was one that commends him and gets him salvation. And so here, in this instance, Jesus makes the case, or it seems to make the case, that the posture of this widow is one of complete and total buy-in to what God is doing. And, and so that just becomes so, so hard for us. Yes? Yeah, he want, what you said is the extravagance God wants is ourselves. And what does Jesus say right before this that drives home that point? No, right before this, what does he say? What are we to give to God? The things that are God's, the things that bear the image of God, we are to give to God, which is us. And so thank you for pointing that out. Because again, as we try and understand what's happening, we see all of these things and Jesus tying all these things together to say, you know, if we lift this again in isolation, we miss it. But in that case, God says, give to me all that is bearing my image. And then in this instance, she gives all she has. And we see this interesting interplay. Now I'm going to give you this one caveat. There is one commentary that I read today that presents a very interesting twist on this story, an interpretation of the story. But we're not going to talk about this week. We're going to start with it next week. We ran out of time. I mean, if we had more time, we could... You can go to your discussion groups. That'll be more fun. <laughs>